possibilities. The Palace Theater, your palace, your place. Shows for the whole family. Waterbury Palace, your palace, your place. Waterbury Palace Welcome to the Palace Theatre's Broadway Buzz, presented by Webster Bank. My name is Stuart Brown, founder of the 24-7 online Broadway radio station, soundsofbroadway.com, playing the best from off-Broadway, Broadway, and the London stage. I'll be your host for this podcast series. On this episode of the Broadway Buzz, I'll be spotlighting some of the musical blockbusters that have played the Palace over the years, such as Mamma Mia, Jersey Boys, Les Miserables, The Phantom of the Opera, and The Book of Mormon. For this particular episode, I'm going to be focusing on just two, Jersey Boys and Phantom of the Opera. Maybe on a future episode, we will visit some of the other blockbuster musicals that have come to the Palace's stage. Let's start off with Jersey Boys, and it is a 2005 jukebox musical that dramatizes the formation, success, and eventual breakup of the 1960s rock and roll group, The Four Seasons. It is presented in a documentary-style format, structured as four seasons, each narrated by a different member of the band who gives his own perspective on its history and music. The title refers to the fact that members of The Four Seasons are from New Jersey. There is plenty of the Four Seasons' greatest hits in the show, including such classics as Sherry, Big Girls Don't Cry, Walk Like a Man, Dawn, and many more. The musical ran on Broadway from 2005 to 2017, racking up 4,642 performances. It has had a number of national tours, productions in London's West End, Australia, South Africa, and many other countries. The show won the 2006 Tony Award for Best Musical and the 2009 Laurence Olivier Award for Best New Musical on the London Stage. It is currently the 12th longest-running musical in Broadway history. The London production ran for nine years and is the 20th longest-running musical in West End history. So how did Jersey Boys come together? Well, in the early 2000s, Bob Gaudio, an original Four Seasons member, sought to make a musical from the songs of the band, and he hired book writers Rick Ellis and Marshall Brickman, along with director Des McEnough. Brickman suggested creating a show about the band's history instead of repurposing their songs for an independent story the way that Mamma Mia did with the songs of the group ABBA. Brickman was drawn to the project because, as he says, it's a classic American story. It's rags to riches and back to rags. Ellison Brickman conducted countless interviews with Frankie Valli and Four Seasons founding member Bob Gaudio, who wrote many of the group's big hits. From the beginning, Valley and Gaudio insisted that the musical tell the unvarnished story of the group, including the boys' involvement with petty crime and encounters with the mafia. Rick Ellis says, to their eternal credit, they said, go ahead, put it all out there. It must have been very hard to have the mob breathing down their necks, and yet they survived. They managed to not get killed, to be owned by the mob. It was a pernicious, pervasive influence in their lives, and yet they survived, and we love survival stories in this country. Of the three remaining members of the group, they approached Tommy DeVito last, who told them, don't listen to those guys, I'll tell you what really happened. Rick Ellis said that getting DeVito's version was a eureka moment, and the contradiction in their stories ended up being incorporated into the musical. The writers were also contacted by family members of the late mob boss Jip DiCarlo to ensure that he would be portrayed respectfully. Little was known to the public about the group's history prior to the premiere of the musical because the magazines of the era didn't write much about them. 
In their research, Brickman and Ellis were surprised to find that members had prison records which might have prevented their music from being played if it had been publicized when they were active. According to Gaudio, back then things were a little clean cut, don't forget, so the idea of our story getting out was horrifying to us. Other bands of the time projected street-tough images, but the Four Seasons cleaned themselves up in order to be palatable for mainstream listeners. They weren't the guys who were written about in the magazines, said Ellis. There was no glamour quotient. They didn't have long hair. They didn't have exotic accents. They didn't come from across the pond. Now, quoting from the show itself, their main fans were the factory workers, the truck drivers, the kids pumping gas, flipping burgers, the pretty girl with circles under her eyes behind the counter at the diner. They weren't guys who went to college and protested the war. They were the guys who shipped out and fought the war. Guardio, Frankie Valli, and Tommy DeVito had decided to step back from the show's creative process because they lacked objectivity, and they left it to the threesome Brickman, Ellis, and McEnough to take the story to the stage. Marshall Brickman noted that each member had his own perspective on what happened during their tenure as a group. However, Guardio and Valley still had final say on whether to end the show if they didn't like it. In the show's first incarnation at La Jolla, California, and later on Broadway, the musical succeeded based largely on word of mouth, thanks to many of the same blue-collar fans. According to Marshall Brickman, there was practically no advanced sales before we opened on Broadway. It was the guys in the windbreakers from New Jersey and their families who helped to spread the word. Well, why don't we pause here for my talking and play some music from the show. Let's hear three numbers from the musical, since most of the songs are short. And then I'll be back with the story of actor Joe Pesci's involvement with the group. So, from the Grammy Award-winning original cast recording of Jersey Boys, let's start off with their first number one hit, Sherry. And then one day, a tune pops into my head. I jot down some dummy words. Nick and I do a quick head arrangement. Then we call the studio and sing it to crew. And the whole world exploded.
songs from the original cast recording of Jersey Boys. That was Walk Like a Man, Big Girls Don't Cry, and Sherry. Now, some listeners may have heard the story that the actor Joe Pesci is the man that got the group together. Well, that story is true. He was a neighborhood friend of the guys back in 1959 and introduced Tommy DeVito, Nick Massey, and Frankie Valli to a kid named Bob Gaudio. The rest, as they say, is history. But fame was hard to achieve for the Four Seasons, According to an article by New York Times reporter Mark Rotella, 
Frankie Valli was unsure of his chances in the music business before the band hit it big and had been studying to become a hairstylist. But he and Bob Gaudio went knocking on the doors of music producers in Midtown Manhattan. By chance, they ran into Bob Crew, a producer and songwriter who had worked with Frankie Valli before. In time, Bob Crew matched his lyrics with Bob Gaudio's music and produced several of the Four Seasons records. They had a producer, but they had yet to have a hit. They continued to play throughout New Jersey, but before things got better, they had, of course, to get worse. According to Frankie Valley, we had auditioned for a gig at a bowling alley and cocktail lounge in Union, New Jersey, and were turned down. Fortunately, there was a positive ending to that story, because that's how the band came up with their name. Frankie Valley says, as we were leaving, we looked up at the name of the place, The Four Seasons. Finally, in 1962, they managed to get a show at the Seabreeze Nightclub in Point Pleasant, New Jersey. They had just finished their last song, but the crowd wouldn't let them leave. They had run out of their songs, but then Frankie Valley picks up some maracas and does a great imitation of 1940s singer Rose Murphy in a falsetto, and that was according to Bob Crew. It was so clear, so crisp. That night, Bob Gordio went home and wrote a song with the falsetto still ringing in his ears. Sherry took all of 15 minutes to write. It surged onto the charts and hit number one. So why has Jersey Boys been so popular? According to Marshall Brickman, the music is great and it's a good story. It has everything in it. It has love, it has loyalty, it has jealousy, it has humor, and it's about a kind of family, the four seasons. We cram a lot into two and a half hours without it seeming overstuffed. It was a rags-to-riches tale that involved juvenile delinquency, the mafia family, dysfunction, 175 million records sold, and a string of now classic number one hits. Nick Cosgrove, who has played the role of Frankie Valli in the national tour, said, It's a backstage pass to see what went on behind the music. It's not all glitz and glamour. There were divorces, deaths in the family. You get a peek into these guys' lives, and it's told from their perspective. Added Rick Ellis, The audience responds more like a rock concert audience than a musical audience. That created an electricity from the very first performance. Well, that concludes our Jersey Boys segment. We'll be back with Phantom of the Opera after this short break. Where can you hear the best music from Off-Broadway, Broadway, and the London stage? The answer, soundsofbroadway.com, your 24-7 online Broadway music radio station. Listen to selections from well-known, popular, and more obscure musicals from the most diverse playlists anywhere. That's soundsofbroadway.com. Let's go on with the show. We're all living through an unusual time together, but each one of us is dealing with it differently. Webster Bank is here to help you move forward at whatever pace is right for you. Whether you're taking small steps or big, bold ones. Whether you're refocusing on your future, re-energizing your business, or reconnecting with everyone you love. Webster will help you take your next steps on your time. Welcome back to the Palace Theater's Broadway Buzz. My name is Stuart Brown. Let's take a look at the second blockbuster musical that has played the Palace Theater, and that is Phantom of the Opera. And that is a musical with music by Andrew Lloyd Webber and lyrics by Charles Hart with additions from Richard Stilgo. Lloyd Webber and Stilgo also wrote the music's book. Even if you haven't seen Phantom of the Opera, 
You know that it's about a disfigured musical genius in mask living in the subterranean labyrinth beneath the Paris Opera House. He seduces innocent young opera singer. Chandeliers crash down from the ceiling. Madness ensues. Music plays. It's based on the French novel The Fantôme de l'Opera by Gaston Leroux. The musical opened in London's West End in 1986 and on Broadway in 1988. It won the 1986 Olivier Award for Best Musical on the London Stage and the 1988 Tony Award for Best Musical. Michael Crawford in the title role won the Olivier and the Tony Awards for Best Actor in a Musical. It is the longest-running show in Broadway history by a wide margin with over 13,000 performances, and that is the first production ever to do so. It is the second-longest-running West End musical, and first is Les Miserables, and it is the third-longest-running show overall after Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap. The show has been translated into several languages and produced in over 28 countries on six continents. Hal Prince, the legendary producer and director who helmed the musical, when asked about its longevity, said, It's not something you figure is going to happen. You don't do shows expecting that. It's a happy surprise. I guess I think it's perhaps more escapist than any show I've ever done. You just go into the theater, and you enter a Victorian world, and it's a little thrilling. It's sexy. It's beautiful to look at. And what you do is you can't too much relate to it in terms of your everyday life outside of the theater, like a great romance novel. So, how did Phantom of the Opera come to being? In 1984, Andrew Lloyd Webber contacted Cameron McIntosh, and he was the co-producer of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats and Song and Dance, and he proposed a new musical. He was aiming for a romantic piece and suggested Gaston LaRue's book, The Phantom of the Opera, as a basis. The two of them screened both the 1925 Lon Chaney and the 1943 Claude Rains motion picture, but neither saw an effective way to make the leap from film to stage. Later in New York, Andrew Lloyd Webber found a second-hand copy of the original long-out-of-print LaRue novel, which supplied the necessary inspiration to develop a musical. He said, I was actually writing something else at the time, and I realized that the reason I was hung up was because I was trying to write a major romantic story and had been trying to do that ever since I started my career. Then, with The Phantom, it was there. To help him write the score... Andrew Lloyd Webber first approached Jim Steinman to write the lyrics because of his dark, obsessive side. Now, you might not know of the name Jim Steinman, but he wrote the songs behind the mega albums put out by the rock star Meatloaf. But Jim Steinman declined in order to fulfill his commitments on a Bonnie Tyler album. Next, the lyricist Alan J. Lerner was recruited, but he became seriously ill after joining the project and was forced to withdraw. None of his contributions are credited in the show. Richard Stilgo, the lyricist for Starlight Express, wrote most of the original lyrics for the production. Charles Hart, a young and then relatively unknown lyricist, later rewrote many of those lyrics, along with the original lyrics for Think of Me. Some of Stilgo's original contributions are still present, though, in the final version. The overall score for Phantom of the Opera is sometimes operatic in style, but maintains the form and structure of a musical throughout the show. He combined various styles from grand opera to even Gilbert and Sullivan. He says, These pieces are often presented as musical fragments, interrupted by dialogue or action sequences, in order to clearly define the musical's show within a show. The musical extracts from the opera The Phantom Rites, entitled Don Juan Triumphant, during the latter stages of the musical, are dissonant and modern, suggesting perhaps that the Phantom is ahead of his time artistically.
Maria Bjornsson designed the sets and over 200 costumes, including the elaborate gowns in the masquerade sequence. Her set designs include the chandelier, subterranean gondola, and sweeping staircase. The Phantom's original mask covered the entire face and remained in place throughout the performance, obscuring the actor's vision and muffling his voice. Bjornsson designed the now iconic half-mask to replace it, and the unmasking sequence was added. Gillian Lynn, who choreographed Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats, provided the integral musical staging and choreography. She says, I grew up in the ballet, and I liked gothic and dark. Hal Prince became involved early in the creative process. He stated, Andrew and I share a great affection for Rodgers and Hammerstein's South Pacific. It represents one of the few great romantic musicals of our time. It's interesting about romance and musicals. You would think that most musicals would be romantic, whereas very few actually are. I think of My Fair Lady, which works its way to its most romantic moment. Eliza, where the devil are my slippers? Or The King and I, where the leading couple never gets any further than a gorgeous waltz. Of course, the musical She Loves Me was romantic, and there are other examples, but far fewer than one would imagine. I mention romantic musicals here because Phantom is unabashedly romantic, which I believe is a key reason for its great and continuing success. Hal Prince related how the two leads were cast for the show. Angel Lloyd Webber called him and said, I think I know who should play the Phantom. And he said, Michael Crawford. Hal Prince said, what? He's great, but I don't know. And Angel Lloyd Webber said, what, you don't know? And I didn't know, is that he was a boy soprano and he has a great singing voice. So Hal Prince flew over to London and right away he met in Andrew Lloyd Webber's office and according to Hal Prince, he sang very little. He didn't need to. He was terrific. And that was the end of that. That was perfect. For the female lead, according to Hal Prince, there was some dispute early on with Actors' Equity about bringing Sarah Brightman over. But basically, I testified and said, Andrew's right. He wrote the show for Sarah. Why wouldn't she be able to play in it? And there was a long time when we didn't know if the show was coming to Broadway or not because Andrew said, I'm not going to do it without her because he had written it for her. Well, how about if I stop talking and let's hear a song from Phantom of the Opera. So many good ones to choose from. But I thought, how about the title number from Phantom of the Opera?
your face Draw back in fear I am the mask you wear It's me they hear My spirit and my voice In one combined The phantom of the opera is there The title number from Phantom of the Opera. The version of the musical that played the Palace Theater was, in the words of Cameron McIntosh, a reimagining of the original. According to the producer, the staging is vastly different in ways that will surprise audiences who saw the original. He says the material is exactly the same with a few little tweaks, but just the way the show works is very different. What we wanted was something more dark and brooding. We can show more of the backstage of a 19th century opera house. You see the phantom crawling and disappearing, and the journey to his lair is completely different. The production is more realistic. Other differences include taking the Hall of Mirrors in the book and making it an essential element. 
The whole stage opens and closes and becomes things. Doors open and the Phantom appears. We see a whole lot more of the backstage of the famous opera house the Phantom occupies. We watch the Phantom stalk Christine as parts of the stage move to show us the Phantom's movement throughout the theater. According to Macintosh, the approach feels more dangerous. According to Macintosh, the approach feels more dangerous, less high romance. Many of the signature scenes of the original, the falling chandelier, the boat ride descent into the Phantom's Lair, are done completely differently. According to Macintosh, it's more shocking what it does, referring to the chandelier. Scenes like the boat ride, he says, are equally striking, but in different ways. When the Phantom is enraged, you really feel his wrath by ways of flames suddenly bursting outward and upward from the stage. Other iconic moments are different. One example is the masquerade number at the start of Act 2, originally staged on a large staircase. According to Macintosh, we moved away from that to another space in the Paris Opera House, the Hall of Mirrors. Well, we have just a couple of minutes left. How about if we look at a couple of fun facts about Phantom of the Opera? Since its debut, the show has grossed over $1 billion, that's with a B, dollars on Broadway. The total Broadway attendance is now over $17 million. Phantom became the first stage production to reach worldwide grosses of $6 billion. The original cast recording with over 40 million copies sold worldwide is the best-selling cast recording of all time. To move the show from city to city, 20 trucks are used. In regards to costumes, over 1,200 costume pieces are used during the show. Each ballet girl goes through a pair of ballet shoes every two to three weeks. There are over 120 wigs that travel with the production. About 50 wigs are used in the show every night. They have a stock of about 50 mustaches. For the chandelier, over 6,000 beads are on the chandelier, and it weighs one ton. Well, that concludes our blockbuster musicals that have played the Palace Theater. And as I said at the top of this podcast, there are many others that graced the Palace stage, and we'll get to those in another episode. You've been listening to the Palace Theater's Broadway Buzz, presented by Webster Bank. My name is Stuart Brown, founder of the 24-7 online Broadway radio station, soundsofbroadway.com, playing the best from Off-Broadway, Broadway, and the London stage. I hope you will join me on our next episode. Until then, stay safe, be well, and be informed with the Broadway Buzz. Entertaining new possibilities. The Palace Theater, your palace, your place. Shows for the whole family. Waterbury Palace, your palace, your place. Waterbury Palace.